I didn't know how I was going to write a novel that had so many characters with so many voices, not only technically to pull it off as in to not have the readers head hopping like crazy and wondering well, who, who did what, but I really did want to create that sense of an ensemble cast and it is a challenge. So hopefully, I say it looks much easier on the page. Hopefully it does look a lot easier on the page than it is to actually do. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Each week on The Convo Couch, I'll be chatting to a wide range of women writers, focusing on the heart, craft and business of writing, along with a new release feature author each month. You can listen to the episodes on any of the major podcasting platforms or directly from the Rights for Women website, where you'll also find the transcript of each chat and the extensive Rights for Women backlist. On a personal writing note, my current release is All We Dream. If you'd like to know more about it or any of my books, you can check out my website at pamelacook.com.au for more information. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo Couch and chat to this week's guest. My guest today on the Convo Couch at Rights for Women is Meredith Jaffe. Meredith is the author of three novels for adults, The Fence, The Making of Christina, and her new novel, The Dressmakers of Yarrandarra Prison. Horse Warrior, the first in a children's series, was published in 2019, and Meredith also contributed a short story, Emergency Undies, to the 2019 Funny Bones Anthology. She is the Festival Director of Storyfest, held on the New South Wales South Coast, and regularly facilitates at other writers' festivals and author events. Previously, Meredith wrote the weekly literary column for the online women's magazine, The Hoopla. Her feature articles, reviews and opinion pieces have also appeared in The Guardian Australia, The Huffington Post and Mamma Mia. Meredith became a writer via the scenic route, she says in her bio on her website, which I'm going to be asking her about today. Her new novel, The Dressmakers of Yarrandarra Prison, which I've been very fortunate to have a sneak peek of, is a funny, dark and moving novel about finding humanity, friendship and redemption in unexpected places. And Meredith is here to tell us all about it today as our new release feature author for April. So, Meredith, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. And lovely to be here, Pamela. At last, I can be on this this side of the screen and not listening. (laughs) That's right, because you spend quite a bit of your professional life doing facilitating. And uh, we're going to get on to talking about that later. But of course, right now, you're in the in the thick of, you know, your book's about to come out. I know you're working on on your next novel. So just for anybody who's listening, you know, we've done a little bit in the intro, but can you talk about this scenic route that you took to becoming a writer? Oh, in some ways, sometimes I wish I didn't. I'd be, I have to be <laughs> honest, but sometimes I'm really glad I did. So, you know, it's like what most things in life, it's a double-edged sword. So I, I was a kid who wrote, I wrote terrible poetry as a teen. I wrote lots of short stories I loved 
remember back in the day when you used to have to do creative writing as part of the school certificate, so I loved all that kind of stuff. But was a kid who, who finished school and had no idea what she wanted to be when she grew up. I went to university because... I didn't really know what else to do and I when I and you know I did an arts degree because I didn't know what to do and I finished the arts degree and I was like I'm going to be a writer and my parents are like don't be so stupid get a real job and because I was a good girl like like a lot of only children I went oh okay (laughs) so I did and I fell into uh, the superannuation industry right at the time when it was becoming an industry rather than just a product and I actually really enjoyed it. I spent 10 years doing that, learned some great admin skills, which, you know, do pay off in the end. And then I moved into recruiting and I did that. So superannuation recruiting, funds management recruiting, and I did that for about 15 years. So I guess you could say that I, I honed my interview skills during that time, which paid off with the facilitating type work. But I also, I'd have to say that my favourite part of recruiting was finding out people's stories and and gathering their stories and and putting their life together as a narrative rather than, well, first I worked at such and such and then I worked at so and so. I really liked building the story of that and I I guess um, I should have been listening to myself a bit more, shouldn't I? And then when I I was having my my third child, our, our fourth child combined and my third child, it was right at the time when the GFC hit and I was running my own headhunting business in financial services it didn't look pretty and for once in my life I went, you know what, I think I might just close my little business down. Oh, I think I was like seven months pregnant. I'll just take, take some time out and we'll just see what this looks like on the other side and as we all know it was pretty ugly. But weirdly enough too, considering I had one child doing the HSC, another teenager in high school, a 22-month-old and a newborn, I was really... I was really worried about what I was going to do with my day. I think more I think more from the point of view, in all fairness to me, that the boredom of, of having kids, that sounds so bad. But, you know, kids have kept you really, really busy and they are great and fun and engaging, but it's not mentally stimulating if, you, if you've come from a place where you're constantly using your mind. Does that, that probably sounds a bit better. Yeah, no, I um, think there's a lot of listeners that can relate and I certainly can, yeah. We love them to pieces, but yeah. especially when you've read the same book five times. Um so, yeah, so anyway, so I decided to write a book. And then as I was writing the first draft of that book, absolutely no idea what I was doing, by the way. I didn't even have any how to write a book books. So just kind of writing the story that I had in my head. And we 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 know Wendy Harmer and her husband, Brendan, and I had, we'd had them over for lunch. Wine was involved, clearly, because I said, oh, I'm writing a book, you know, like how dumb was that? And so I'm like, and she was like, oh, yeah, and practically did the eye roll. And in fact, if you ask me, I think she did do the eye roll. She still <laughs> says she did. And she said, oh, well, why don't you show me the first 2,000 words and I'll tell you if you should bother to continue. And I do remember the bother, right? <laughs> but, you know, I'm oblivious. I go, okay. And so I handed the 2,000 words and she comes back and goes, actually, just keep writing. So there was that was my first sort of validation that, you know, that I might be going somewhere with this. But I think the most important thing about that little story is when they had seen my writing. Then fast forward, I don't know, a few months, I can't remember exactly, she came back to me and said, oh, we're thinking about starting this online women's magazine. Would you be interested in working for us? And I was like, yes. And it's the best decision I ever made that the hoopla, as we all know, was around for four years. It began, I think we floated floated but it came out in sort of 2011 originally I was just writing opinion pieces and then about six months into that they asked if I would do the books column and that 
that was a game changer because not only are you reading within a structured environment week in, week out, which is what you do with the podcast and it really keeps you very mm. disciplined about your reading, but it also, as you would also know from the podcast, it makes you read really critically because if you did love a book, you've got to figure out why you loved it and if you hated a book, you've got to figure out why you hated it and if you can't be sitting on the fence about it, you've got to figure that out as well mm. and produce the words around that in a weekly column for, for readers. So that discipline in terms of understanding the sort of journalistic hierarchy of information, writing to deadline every week, being edited, sometimes brutally, all those kind of things come into play so that when you sit down to do your own work, creative, write a blog, whatever that thing is, the, the blank page holds absolutely no fear for me whatsoever. It's just a project that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, you, you, you do learn about writing your way into a scene. You do realise about editing yourself ruthlessly if you don't, someone else will kind of thing. So that's kind of how I ended up with writing. And that was sort of sad in a way that around the same time that the hoopla was finishing up in 2014, 15, was that, that, that was, I mean, it was sad that it was finishing up, but at the same time that was around the time I got my first book contract with my first two books so that's the scenic route. Yeah. Well, I've known you for a while, Meredith, and there's some news in there for me. So it's great to actually find out a few more details about how you got to be where you are. And, of course, you had prior to this, to this new book that's come out, you've had two adult novels published, The Fence and The Making of Christina, and then The Horse Warrior, which was something completely different, a first in a series for children. How do you see this new book sort of fitting into that you know, whole workspace that you've created so far? I think it's interesting because The Fence is a satire and The Making of Christina is a drama. And I think what I've learned through writing is you've got to enjoy the writing process. It's not just the story. But as you know, as a writer, you're so immersed in the character's world, in the world, in the character's world. And what I discovered is that being in Christina's world, which in her case, in that book's case, was like a nine year. That was the very first book I was writing that Wendy said, keep going, but it was the second one published. The, the, the nine years I spent with the, that character was nine years I'll never get back in the sense that, you know, she had a really difficult mm. life and problem to resolve in that novel. So I really wanted to, to start to write novels that were more feel-good and more happy places to go and visit on a daily basis and spend, you know, a year, two, whatever, with the characters. So I guess I learnt that from the writing. And I really enjoyed writing Horse Warrior for kids because, A, it's a lot shorter, so 50,000 words feels like a doddle after 100,000 words. <laughs> but equally, it also really allowed me to have fun and to be not be silly as in, as in ridiculous silly, but anything goes. You know, you, you have to make it. The world you have to do the world building in such a way that everything has its own veracity, but equally you can make you know you can make a mushroom talk, you can make a rock walk, you know you can do whatever you done will please, as long as it fits the context of the world that you've created. And I think that is a really valuable tool or very really valuable lesson that I took out of writing horse warrior and in between all of that too I also did a short story for the funny bones anthology so that was also a really great exercise and just like in silliness and but still still using comedy as a way of of really underscoring important points and I think all of that comes together in the dressmakers yeah I would totally agree having read 
uh, an early copy of it and loved it. And I've just finished reading the final version and, and it's fantastic. But could you tell us, tell listeners what it's about, The Dressmakers? I actually really like my publisher's pitch. This is how she pitched it to the to the um, acquisitions meeting as well. She says she said it was the full Monty meets Orange is the New Black. <laughs> and, That's right. <laughs> and the full Monty in the sense that it's an ensemble piece, as you know, and the Orange is the New Black because it's in set in a prison environment. I've never seen Orange is the New Black, so I just take the word that that's a really great, brilliant drama <laughs> and that therefore the association is really valid. <laughs> but, so the Dressmakers is, is about a group of prisoners who belong, uh, who are in a fictitious jail that I created, Yarrandara, and Derek, who's the main character, has been there for some time. He's in he's in jail because he embezzled funds from his local golf club to fund his uh, poker machine addiction and he doesn't really consider himself an addict or that his crime is all that bad because he didn't kill anyone. And he's estranged from his family. They've had nothing to do with him since he's been to jail. He's one sort of highlight of his week is the sewing group. So Connecting Threads, the charity, runs a sewing group called The Back Tackers and he goes to sewing every week and he does tapestry and needlepoint and makes cushions and things like that. But he's a bit of a loner. So that's kind of the main thread where the dressmaker's element comes into it. And then around Derek are other characters like the doc, who's the prisoner librarian, and a new guy who comes into the jail called Joey Maloney. So it's about the journey about how these men all come together, I guess, and about never giving up hope. It's about, you know, some of it's just about basically just having a laugh. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to deny it. Yeah, it's just a feel-good story. It just happens to be set in a world that hopefully... For most of us, we don't know. Or Yeah, which brings me to my next question, Meredith. Where did you get the initial idea for, for the story, you know, this idea of having a story set in a men's prison? I know, somewhere I know nothing about. Um, <laughs> so I was back when I was at the Hoopla, so this shows that I wasn't doing a random, you know, let's talk about the Hoopla. So when I was at the Hoopla, I used to interview writers all the time and this particular time I was preparing to interview Esther Freud and the book at that time was uh, Mr Mac and Me, which is a great little book. And she's also known Kinky Boots, I think it was her, was it? Uh, she wrote that that book that became the film right. about her crazy family. I, th- I could be wrong about the title, but I think that was it. And she also wrote, did a lot of freelance journalism for The Guardian. And this particular piece, so I don't know, when you research people, I just dive into the internet and go fishing and see what I find. And I found this article she'd written about a group called Fine Cell Work. And Fine Cell Work is a charity and they go into prisons in Britain and they teach men, because it is predominantly men like Australia, 93% of the prison population there, and I think it's 93, 94 here as well, male. So they go into prisons and it's not just necessarily minimum security, it could be you know, it could be maximum security as well, and they te- the volunteers teach these men how to do fine needlework and quilting. And I thought, what? Wow, and you're looking at the beautiful tapestry cushions and there's this beautiful quilt, and I should... Also mention another author is Tracy Chevalier and she's quite highly engaged with them as well now. Like both her and Esther Freud are now patrons of Fine Cell Work. They weren't at this particular point in time. And Tracy worked with them um, on the book about the sleep quilt which hangs in the Victoria and Albert uh, Museum in, in the UK. But when I saw this article about that Esther had written about Fine Cell Work and my immediate reaction was, wow, 
Imagine if you were a guy in prison who wanted to make his daughter's wedding dress. I have no idea where that thought came from because they don't make wedding dresses in jail. They don't make any dresses. They they make, um, you know, in the manufacturing part, they might make hospital scrubs. But in the in the sort of fine cell work area, it's all tapestry, cushions, needlepoint, quilting. But that was the idea and I wouldn't go away. And then my husband's like, I said, oh, I've got this amazing idea for a book. And he's like, oh, yeah. And I told him, he went, that's really stupid. And I was like, come on, it's a great idea. Men in prison making a dress. He said, how would they physically make a dress? For a start, well, how would they know what size she was? How would they measure her? And, and I just sat there and I thought, hmm, I'll show you. And I so all that. those kind of questions, if you've read the book, you'll know, are kind of uh, addressed, you know, the practical, the practical problems that confront them. And then, of course, because I had that issue about how to make the dress in prison, I then had to create a character who would be able to, to carry the men forward, and that's predominantly Joey Maloney and, of course, facilitated by Jane, the sewing teacher. So that's – did I answer the question? I've kind of gone – Yeah, no, no, you definitely did. Yeah, Esther Freud. So, yeah, so yeah. that's where it all came from. Okay, so we have Paul to thank for some of that, you know. That yeah, that's I, right. Yeah, I'll show for you. For the naysayer in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and once you got that idea, Meredith, and, and you know, because I think that's a fabulous idea, like with fiction, of course, anything that's got that sense of friction or tension, you know, is automatically going to give you something to start with, something to really grab onto. And that whole idea that, you know, well, they can't make a wedding dress in prison. Well, let's see if they can. But did you have to then go about, I'm guessing, doing a fair bit of research on, you know, prison life itself and, and how you know, sewing group, for instance, would operate within the prison system and all that sort of thing? What was your research process like for all that? Well, my first go-to point was find cell work itself. And if anyone's interested, I do urge you to go and jump on their website. They have, a, like, the blog system, so, you know, blogs from the prisoners and they have um, letters from the prisoners about how the sewing has affected their lives, both inside, uh, inside in the sense of, filling time but also inside in terms of uh, improving their mental health and their, their sense of well-being as well as outside the prison once they leave the system. So there's so there was a lot of information that I found there and then it's just I guess I, every time I hit a point in the story where I wondered whether that would be true. So for instance what you have for breakfast is mandated in a prison system. So you have to go look and go well what what do you have for breakfast and the thing that makes it slightly tricky is that in Australia, every state runs, like education, the states run corrective services. And so there are variations on the theme of, of how they might address certain issues. But also within the prison system itself, not all prisons are created equal. And by that I mean, you know, there could be a, a prison that has its own dairy. There could be a prison that has its own vegetable gardens. So they're not necessarily all reliant on food coming in from you know, as it were, the Coles warehouse and being schlepped mm. in. Sometimes they are act actually actively involved in growing the food or prepping the food as well. And I must say that in my research, our system in Australia seemed quite positively, you know, a much more positive experience than it did seem to be in the UK. So there was a, that kind of thing. But even down to like, what toiletries are they allowed? I just assumed they wouldn't be allowed to have a razor. I mean, we'd all be assuming that, wouldn't we? But they've got to shave. So mm. they do have safety razors and stuff like that. So, yeah, really, really down to the detail as well as, you know, prison is a highly structured environment, so knowing how that day unfolds. And 
and their day is nothing like our day. I mean, they're in lockdown most of their day. So, you know, where we might decide we want to go to bed at 9 o'clock at night or 10 or whatever, that decision's not yours to make. Mm. So it's also about, it's, it's really what I'm saying is it's world building. So you have to, yeah. you, have, you really have to go into this into this environment and create the universe in which this story could could operate and constantly fact-checking yourself because it was it would never work as a story if it wasn't authentic and so i had to be really really careful that i didn't let the story override the reality and i wasn't trying to make prison seem like you know a glossy version you know the, yeah. the vaseline on the screen version of prison i was actually trying to still keep it grounded in what life would have would be like for those men yeah, well, you've mentioned Derek, of course, who is, is the main character and it's his daughter who they're creating the wedding dress for. And, you know, there's lots of antics that come from that particular practice. But who are some of the other men in the in the prison with Derek? Because he is quite, as you say, he's quite an introvert in the prison. He doesn't really think he is a criminal, but he is in with a group of pretty hardened criminals, isn't he? And it's a really interesting mix of personalities and and just seeing that sense that you know there's often that little edge to the group you know that, you, that at any moment despite the camaraderie and and the fun stuff that's going on you do a great job of having that sense of you know at any moment something could explode here mm. so i think it's i think it's really important to understand that this the novel is set in one wing of a prison so what I've learned through talking to people who work in the system and stuff is like, well, what we think of as a prison, say, for instance, I don't know, Long Bay, is actually a whole lot of prisons within that prison. So they're sort of like pods, if you like, within the prison. So the other thing that's really important is that, so I'm just, my novel is set in one pod, if you like, sea wing right. of a, a much larger prison. The other thing that's really important to understand is that the way prisoners are categorised, they work their way through, they, part of the incentive and privilege scheme um, is that they can work their way from, you know, hardcore maximum security through to day release. Because without that incentive, you've got, you know, you need the carrot and the stick to get people to behave yeah. in the ways that you want to do. So the novel is set in C wing deliberately because that's a minimal security wing. So there's a stuff that happens in that wing that wouldn't necessarily happen in B wing or A wing or you know, that kind of equivalent. Yeah. So it's important to understand that I've given myself a break <laughs> and made and made it you know a little bit more accommodating for the sort of things that I want to do. In that wing is a guy. So that's why you've got this real mix of prisoners. I think it's really important to understand right. that you wouldn't necessarily be rubbing shoulders with life, people who've got multiple life sentences if you were in maximum security. So the doc who's the prisoner librarian, he's in for murdering little old ladies in their beds. He, his big passion is books. He runs the library. He runs a book club out of the library. He runs the journal writing course. He helps men who are illiterate or functionally illiterate write letters to their lawyers or families or children. And that's a really big issue in the real world, that literacy and functional mm. literacy are very high rates amongst prisoner populations. Um, most of, a lot of, so not most, but a large percentage of them do not have, have not gone to school past year nine. And even so, they have not necessarily been at school up until year nine, if you know what I mean. So, so the doc's a great character. He's he's you know he's a murderer, but he's 
not a particularly nice person and he's got Derek's number down pat so he gives Derek a really hard time but then he's a bit of a psycho as well because he'll be absolutely cutting and devastating one minute and the next minute he rocks up in Derek's um, cell with a Scrabble board under his arm and you know, challenges him to a game of Scrabble. So the Scrabble becomes a motif in the novel for, for mm. that sort of what would be a violent expression in another relationship in, with, with Derek and the dockets over the Scrabble board. So Derek's best friend is Parker. He's a very old prisoner. In fact, you know, I guess in one sense his job in the novel is to talk about what happens to people who are ageing in the prison system mm. and how prisons are not designed to be nursing homes um, or retirement villages and that causes real problems because if you've got old men who have probably had health issues their entire life, poor education, poor opportunities, who then get dementia in a prison situation or develop, you know, really major health issues, it falls to the guards to have to look after them and that's yeah. become a really big issue in prison. So I really wanted to talk about that a little bit with Parker, but he's also a great comedian. He's a really good foil for Derek because he's got Derek's number and he just just like basically encourages Derek's self, um, what, what, you know, Derek's always telling himself stories really about you know, how nothing's ever Derek's fault, but anyway. And then into the jail comes a new, a new guy, Joey Maloney. He's been... He's actually at the end of his sentence. He's a young guy. You don't find out to the end of the novel what he actually did. And he is the real, he's a real larrikin on the outside. He he's always got a joke. He's always ribbing people and carrying on. But I think the thing I like about Joey is as the novel progresses, you slowly see the other side of this character and, mm. and what he's really like. So they're kind of the, the main men in the prison. Yeah. And I probably should mention there. It's the, the, the guard that Derek calls young Carl, who's kind of, who likes to believe in the, the better side of the men and likes to try and keep, you know, he likes to smooth oil on troubled waters. He doesn't want a hard day at work. But he's also, he used to be a chef. So there's a bit of a running gag about food that runs through through the book as well. So that's kind of the main in, internal prison kind yeah. of world. The good guys, shall we say, in the prison environment. Yeah, for sure. And were you conscious, Meredith, as you were writing and creating these characters? And, you know, we do get quite attached to our characters, but obviously, you know, they are prisoners, they've committed crimes. Were you sort of conscious of balancing, you know, that line between, well, these are criminals, they've done the wrong thing, and just in terms of how you were presenting them? Because one of the things that I love about the story and about the characters is that there's nothing is really black and white, you know. There's this sort of sense that, you know, yes, okay, they're criminals but they're still human beings and there is this idea that, you know, they're in there, they're going to at some point most of them are going to come out of the prison system. You know, who are they going to be when they come out? Like how much did all those factors play into your writing of those characters? Enormously. My my degree was in English literature and sociology, so I've always had a real passion for how how humans work as a group rather than individual psychology. And I think prison is a really interesting group environment for human beings. It's not a it's not a natural environment. And so I guess you could say that, you know, you could you could think of a lot of different environments that were microcosms but not slightly real. So I mean you're you used to be a teacher. I mean high schools are an environment unto their own. I'm sure working on a space station is, you know, an environment unto its own. Being in the army, you know, being working in a hospital. And I think so you you kind of 
in what I guess I'm saying is that in those kind of environments, you, you're seeing behaviour through a particular in a particular context and through a particular lens that may not be the same as it were, if it was on the outside. So because I'm in that environment, I'm not spending my time judging them for their crimes. I'm spending time working with them on their day-to-day life kind of thing. So I didn't want to come as a narrative voice over the top of the story and go, oh, look, this is terrible. There are times, as you know, in the novel where we where I do talk about the crimes that are at the centre of uh, why they are there. But I also think it's really important to understand that, and I've, and I've talked this, a lot about this with people who've worked in custodial capacities and or teaching in jails and stuff, is that they don't even deal with the prisoners on a day-to-day basis with the, the big label, you know, tattooed on the forehead kind of thing, is, is that you you can't function like that. You actually mm. have to deal with them person to person. And so I I just didn't, I wasn't trying to write a, stov- a novel so I could tell people what I thought about, you know, people who are murderers or, you know, gambling addicts or whatever. I was writing a story that I wanted to go I wanted to I wanted to use the fact that they were misfits, if you like, to put it in that in that context. You know, the, to put to put them in a situation where they were doing something like sewing a dress and and how and having that sort of you talk about tension and friction. There is that friction around these guys. You know how they're going to work together when they're not used to working to, together to create something, which is sort of the antithesis of how they spend their, the rest of their time. Yeah. Yeah, which makes for some really great reading. And, of course, it's not just the men. As you mentioned, we have Debbie who features a little bit in the story as well, of course, the the bride-to-be and Derek's ex-wife, Lorraine, who is uh, an interesting character, and Jane who runs the sewing circle. So maybe if you can just give us a little little insight into the, the women in the novel. So Jane is, you know, she is the sewing teacher who comes into the jail every Thursday for three hours and runs the backtackers. So she she works for the uh, charity, Australian sewing charity called Connecting Threads, which is the equivalent of fine cell work in the UK. So one's real, one's not. And they call their sewing groups the backtackers. And I guess that's partly to, you know, make them more masculine sounding than um, a sewing circle. And she comes in every Thursday and teaches the men the fine art of stitching or, and she also supervises. So as prisoners build their skills and they're, they're starting to then teach other prisoners who join the group. So it's a select group, so it's only 13 stitches at any one time. So that's her job is to come in and basically teach them stitch, stitching skills. She takes their finished work out of the prison with her. The men are paid to do the stitching, so she has to keep track of who did what and make sure they've got something to do and make sure they get paid. So she's there, if you like, to facilitate how they spend their time outside of the attackers as well. So they're sewing in their cells at night, etc. Jane is a real softie in many, many ways, but she's also very stubborn. And she chooses to, she makes a decision in the novel which has almost dire consequences for everybody else and that is also a wonderful source of uh, tension because the reader is aware of the decision and no one else is so she was great fun and then then debbie is yes as the daughter of the bride she has not seen her father since he and uh, since his sentencing here so, so she hasn't seen derek for over five years so she is very influenced by her mother's opinion of her of her dad and that is not a very good opinion and i think Debbie's a really interesting 
linchpin, but I don't want to give too much away. No, so I'm just going to no. leave Debbie at that. But Lorraine, now Lorraine is, she was so much fun to write. Lorraine and her sister been. Sharon, Shaz, yeah. were really good fun to write. And originally when I wrote Sharon, she, sorry, Lorraine, she wasn't that bad. And then, I don't know, on a whim one day, I, I jumped on the Chat 10 Look 3 Facebook page and was like, oh, I'm looking for wedding stories. Will I will steal your ideas, so don't tell me anything that, that you don't want me to put in a book. And I had some fantastic stories. Some of them were sent to me privately and they were doozies, but I <laughs> promised I wouldn't put in the book. So for those ones, I was like, no, if you send it to me privately, I will not put it in the book. But what became crystal clear was that I, my Lorraine at that time was nowhere near as awful as some mothers had been at their daughter's weddings. So I just had to, <laughs> had to ramp her up a fair bit. And I think we'd all agree that Lorraine is appalling. Yeah, she's um, a shocker, but isn't so she? much fun because she's so appalling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at that whole mother of the bride thing. But then, you know, just the mm. whole background with Derek and it, yeah, it makes it for some really funny moments. So, Meredith, the other um, aspect, well, I guess you mentioned before about the library and Doc, you know, running the library and the book club and all that sort of thing, and that's connected to the library that is in the town where the prison is, you know, sort of situated. And I know that you live in a, a sort of small town, rural, you know, community. How much did your experience of living in, in a sort of rural community, if you like, or a small town community, how much of that did you draw on to write those aspects of the book? I think it was a little bit more than that, to be honest. I think it was also, as you know, as a writer, one of the great joys and pleasures is to, to go around touring. And as a consequence, I've been to quite a lot of small-town country libraries and done author talks and had in conversations. And they're just, you know, they're so often in these adorable little old buildings that used to be the bank or used to be the town hall or, you know, you're in the CWA hall or whatever. And... The, the sort of sense of connectedness that comes to the library um, in a small town is a very different, if you like, transaction to what it is in, in a big city library or a big suburban library. It, it is much more intimate. And so definitely there was seeing that in, in, in play on a day-to-day -day basis in my own library in my little town was part of that. And that, you know, library was had been under threat at one point in time. So that sort of, I guess, you know, feeds into the story. But I guess the larger part of that was driven by um, what was happening in the UK again when people might remember, particularly around 2014, 15, 16, was the British government and various councils were closing libraries across the country and authors were coming out and I remember... Um, Okay, no, Catelyn Moran being one of them in particular, coming out saying, I came from a poor working class background. My library, the library was my refuge. And, you know, I escaped a violent family. I escaped boredom. I escaped all sorts, you know, the only way I could get any study done was if I went to the library. And that's the only reason I'm now a professional writer, journalist, whatever the case may be. So there was quite a lot of conversation around it. So I used to write about it in the hoopla a bit as well. And so that was, I think that was also really playing on my mind around the importance of, of literacy generally and, and you're a reading ambassador yourself so you know that that's something that we all talk about as writers that what an immense privilege it is to be able to read and write you know that it's easy to forget and so I really wanted to look at the literacy issue in jails from that lens rather than banging the tabletop and going you know all oh, these poor prisoners are illiterate tra-la-la -la. it's like I wanted to look at well what is the importance of books beyond 
the physical book itself, beyond the reading. And I think it is that that sense of community, that sense of connectedness, which, of course, then ties back into another theme in the book, which is about addiction. And I, I draw on uh, Johan um, Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, where he posits that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety but connectedness. And that really resonates with me. And so I, I saw the library also talking to that idea of, of the opposite of addiction is connectedness. Mm. I love that. And, you know, as you say, there's, pardon the pun, but all these different threads in the story come together and, yeah. you know, you do end up with this really great sort of quilt, if you like, of, you know, issues around friendship, connectedness, you know, the addiction issue, the family issue, the relationships themselves between the men, the friendships. So was there anything, you know, obviously you're drawing on all these things as you're writing the book. Was there anything sort of unexpected that came up in the writing of the story for you? I think... This will sound really silly, but the, the unexpectedness wasn't the story so much as I didn't know how I was going to write a novel that had so many characters with so many voices, not only technically, like to pull it off as in to not have the readers head hopping like crazy and wondering well, who, who did what work, going on but I really did want to create that sense of an ensemble cast and I didn't know how to do that particularly so fortuitously for me I did interview Rosalie Ham about her book The Year of the Farmer and and I asked her that directly like how do you do this like how do you you know you've got all these different characters and all this stuff is going on and there's all these different plot lines and you know I had already had a lot of characters in my book but she said, well, that's just how my brain works. I just think like that. And I was like, right. So you just kind of basically I suppose you just have to take that leap and trust yourself that you can actually you know, pull that off. And it is it is a challenge. Like it looks hopefully, I say, it looks much easier on the page. Hopefully it does look a lot easier on the page than it is to actually do. And I think the other big surprise for me was there were some unexpected plot twists that were even unexpected to me. But when, you know, when you know what it's like as a writer, you go, oh, my God, that is just like, duh, why didn't I think of that before? Those kind of moments were good. And I'm, I'm quite, if you've read any of my drafts, you know that I can't, I can be quite a kind of abrupt at the end of it. It's like, the, you know, it just finishes. It's like and it's up to you as the reader to figure out what would happen next. And I do have writing friends that like, no, no, you need to sew it up more neatly, pardon the pun. And so <laughs> this was my <laughs> this is my first novel where I challenged myself to tie it all up in a neat bow at the end. <laughs> so, mm. so that was a challenge too. So there was a bit of a, but the way that came about was a bit of a surprise, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is wrapped up in a beautiful bow. And while we're talking about that, of course, the gorgeous cover that was specially prepared for you can you tell us a little bit about that because it's just fabulous like you know if some like it's the sort of thing that when you're an aspiring writer or you're just starting out you're like that is so cool like you can't see in this in the way this is framed that on my wall over there is the holly ringland poster for yes. lost hours of alice heart yeah. that artwork that they had commissioned that was up there before I was with the publisher. So this is the same publisher, right? So I've just loved the artwork in that poster and the amount of, you know, that someone actually drew all those beautiful flowers and then 
the graphic design people had all turned it into that lush cover and did all the artwork inside. I was like, wow, you know, how lucky was Holly Ringland? And so it's kind of a bit weird for me that the same publisher turned around and said, do you know what would be really, really good? Like, so they designed the cover and it was just, you know, graphic design. And then my editor comes back to me and she says, oh, well, the designer's mum's a stitcher, so they've decided they're going to stitch the cover. And I was like, what? And so she gave that image to her mum and her mum, with a blank canvas, literally sewed that cover onto a canvas. Like no, it wasn't, you know, no colouring in between the lines. Mm -hmm. It was literally, I've seen the pictures and I'll, I've put them up on my newsletter, but I'll probably put them up on my website once the cut, now the cover reveal's been done. So, yeah, so they then they stitched all, her mum stitched all of that cover and then they photographed the stitched cover to then create the book cover. Mm. So, yeah, it's and then really that's kind of embossed a bit and stuff, isn't it? So it's pretty cool. Like I feel incredibly privileged that anyone would go to that much effort for my for my book. Oh. <laughs> Sounds really awful. But, you know, it is a very nice thing to do. And oh, this is a bit lovely. different, you know. It, as we know, it can get a bit boring with book covers when they've got stock images all yeah. the time and that you kind of go, oh, it looks the same as, you know. There's been a bit of a run on books with women walking down roads with hats on and suitcases and going off into the distance and you sort of, as you know yourself, you know, that can sort of, it can get a little bit stuck in the rut for some covers. And you and I were talking earlier about how much we love the new Emily Maguire cover with mm. the love objects. I mean, wow, that is an amazing cover. So it's really lovely to see when publishers can go out, you know, and make something that's a work of art in and of itself, I think. Yeah, definitely. Are you a, a sewer yourself, Meredith? <laughs> Yes, I am a sewer. I'm just hesitating because it's like at the moment I've got so many things going on. It's like I <laughs> basically get to post dinner and it's like, right, where's the bed? Take me to it. But, yes, I am. I'm, I'm in the middle of doing a strawberry thief tapestry, which oh, it's actually needlepoint, it's not tapestry, which is a uh, Willie Morris design. And I've got a whole lot of tapestry, tapestries, also Willie Morris of his artichoke series, that I've got about to get turned into throw cushions. I originally did them. This is what happens, you see, when you're a single mum for 10 years and you've got no social life, you've got a lot of time for stitching. So I, I recently uncovered this whole camphorwood box of all this stuff I'd forgotten I'd even made over the years. That ch that child that of which I'm talking that, that, that I was a single mum for 10 years is now 30. So you can imagine some of it's a bit old. But I found all these some um, artichoke heart tapestries, there's six of them, because originally I was doing them to be drop seats into dining chairs. And so I went, oh, golly. And they're not, like, tapestries are really expensive now. And so I, I went into the local upholsterer who's a mate of ours and said, can you turn them into throw cushions? And he went, absolutely. So they're going to have a second life. But, yeah, I do stitch and I do knit. I wouldn't, I probably, I probably say I'm a slightly better stitcher than I am a knitter. I'm self-taught because I'm left-handed and it's really hard for anyone to teach you how to do stuff like that when you're a lefty. So it's all been out of books and stuff. But it's like, like I wouldn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm not no wunderkind. I'm no Joey Maloney, let's put it that way. Right, okay. <laughs> but at least you could draw on your experience of uh, stitching in yes. describing that in the book. Yes. And, of course, one of the things, one of the big things that's been keeping you very busy is your work with StoryFest, which is coming up very soon. So could you tell us a little bit about that? So StoryFest is a little festival we started down in my part of the world on the south coast of New South Wales. It's kind of already bigger than we anticipated, but it's a great team of people. We just, we, it's sort of, it's, it's a writer's, reader's festival meets 
film festival kind of, you know, it's got a bit of drama going on. So it's 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 called Story Fest because it is a storytelling festival. So that's going to be on the weekend of June the 18th to the 20th this year, like you say, not far off. Mm-hmm. And we've got something like 40 artists coming to visit the area. So that's, um, yeah, everything from filmmakers. We're actually going to be showing the dressmaker and talking to Rosalie Ham and Sue Maslin, who Sue Maslin may produce the movies, Rosalie Hamp wrote the book. So I'm looking forward to that perennial conversation around which is better, the book or the, the movie. That'll be fun. But there's a whole lot of people and many people that have been on your on your podcast as well. So there'll be some real familiar faces, some new faces. And it's just a wonderful weekend and the locals come out in absolute droves to support it. So it does make it like most things that you put your heart and soul to, the heart and soul into. It's exhausting, but when you get to the see it happen it's kind of like whoa that is so cool so yeah it's it's a bit in the it's in that final rush phase where it's seven days a week trying to make sure this no wheels fall off (laughs) i'm sure they won't and i'm really looking forward to it but in the meantime of course your beautiful book the dressmakers of yarandera prison is going to be out in time for mother's day so is it available in different formats and where do you suggest people go to find it well, it's going to be an ebook. It is an ebook. It is a print book, and it's also an audio book. And I here's the thing for you: the the guy who recorded the audio book messaged me on Instagram to say, "I've just finished recording the audio book of your book, of your novel with and the actor who's doing the voiceover." And I both in tears. And I've never had that happen to me when I've recorded a book before. And um, I just wanted to tell you, and I went, "Wow." So I haven't heard the audio book, but I reckon that means it's probably going to be a pretty good audio book. Yeah. How exciting. So, yeah, so it's available in those three formats and it's available all over the place in all the usual places that people buy their books and, and audio books and stuff. So, yeah, not long. And as you say, Mother's Day. Yeah. So definitely good feel-good fiction for Mother's Day. Definitely. Well, congratulations on it, Meredith. It's a fabulous book and I know it's going to just hit, strike so many chords with people when they get out there and start to read it. So well done and I can't wait to see it out in the in the public domain and with people sitting on trains and buses now, hopefully, post-COVID, well, almost post-COVID, you know, and listening to the audio book. Oh, look, exactly. Look, and that's, that's the exciting bit, isn't it, as a writer, is like starting to hear the reaction and whether people, you know, how, how the book makes people feel. So I, mm. I am excited that it's going to be out in the world. I am really keen to hear what people have to say and what resonates with people. And that's all sort of, that's what it has, you know, it's sort of like you, you release it into the world and you, and you see, you know, if it flies and how it flies. It's, it's an exciting time. So yeah. I really do hope people, you know, get hold, get hold of it and enjoy it and have a great ride with it. Yeah, and if people want to find out more about you and your other books, Meredith, where's the best place to find that online? Well, pretty easy. If you go to my website at meredithjaffe.com, you'll find me there with all sorts of comments and there's reader's notes going up and stuff as well for people who are interested for book club. I've written a whole, I think I've written 12 questions as well, so there'll be heaps of support material too if people want to really delve into the book. So all on the website. Great. Well, I'm going to be seeing you very soon at the launch of the book. And, uh, yeah, and also then at Storyfest. So thank you for joining us today on the Convey Couch and all the best with it. Thank you so much for having me, Pam, and thank you for everyone who's listening in today. 
Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>